The reading that you just heard comes from the letter of James in the New Testament. And during the 1500s, Martin Luther called that letter, the epistle of James, an epistle of straw. He thought it was flim-flam. He didn't care much for it. It couldn't hold up to the other writings in the New Testament, he thought. The letter of James is a short and easy read. James is the brother of Jesus, and he was described in Galatians as being one of the pillars of the church. It's well known that he was an important figure in the spread of Christianity, and he sat on the very first council in Jerusalem that gathered together to discuss important church practices and doctrine in those very early years. But Luther and a handful of other theologians throughout history dismissed James. No doubt some people probably still do. There are other more important, more relevant, more meaty writings in the Bible, they claim. But James composed this letter to be a practical guide for a specific group of people living in the first century. It's believed to have been written for the Jews and the Jewish Christian communities who had become more and more frustrated with the ruling Roman Empire of the day, an empire that turned a blind eye to injustice and poverty and widespread corruption amongst its leaders. The letter of James is renowned for his calls to, Christi to Christians to fight poverty and to care for the poor in practical ways, to stand up for the oppressed and to not be like the world when responding to the evils of the world. Rather than respond to hatred with hatred, James said, he encouraged people to embrace, as he put it, a heavenly wisdom which includes peacemaking and righteousness and justice. Clearly, the community that James was addressing in this letter was dealing with some tough stuff. The Jews and the early Christians had spread out from Jerusalem, some to find a better life, some out of fear. Some had simply never returned from previous exiles. Others, for sure, had left to help spread the gospel of Jesus. It's officially known as the diaspora, which many of you probably know. It's a word that simply means people scattered out from their home, which was Israel. So there was this kind of multiculturalism in which the Jews tried to maintain their history and their religious heritage while living in kind of a melting pot of difference. Jews and Jewish Christians and others who were in the minority, though, were very oppressed by the rulers of the Roman Empire. Jews had been tossed out completely by the Emperor Claudius, who for forbade them from ever even entering the city of Rome. And we know that war broke out shortly after that and resulted in the destruction of the temple for good. In, in the midst of that political regime, which was oppressive and murderous towards those who were not in lockstep, religious leaders were also wrestling with the consequences of Jesus' death and resurrection. They were asking big questions of the day, questions like, was Jesus Messiah for the Jews, or was he Messiah for all, including the Gentiles? And if that was the case, 
Then they wrestled with, well, what do we do with that? What, do, what are the implications of that with the law that was set aside for the Jews and had been upheld for thousands of years? Things like circumcision and abstinence from certain cultural practices and eating the right kinds of food. In fact, food was a big deal because Christians were called to share a meal with each other in remembrance of Jesus. So if they were to gather around a table together, Jews and Gentiles, what, what in the world were they supposed to put on the table? There was infighting and rage over the very ministry, the very nature of ministry. And so these divisions between one religious group and another religious group coincided with this massive political upheaval, moral transgressions at a very high level, and a power structure that allowed some pretty awful humanitarian negligence, shall we say. Apparently, the bitterness and the anger was getting ugly. So, obviously, Luther was right. This letter has nothing to say to us today. But it does show up in our lectionary readings on occasion, and so we're going to explore it a little bit. James starts out by focusing our attention in the right place. He says, everything good and perfect from, comes from God who created all the light and who never changes. What a perfect meditation for us. Everything good and perfect comes from God who created all the light and who never changes. But then James cuts right to the chase. He addresses both sides of the ugliness that is happening. And he says this in verse 19, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. He says, your anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And righteousness here is the same word that Paul uses over and over again in his letters. James is saying that you could, in effect, believe. You could profess belief. You could think you are religious but you won't find righteousness with God in a snapping, reactionary anger. And then James says, get rid of all that. Get rid of the, what he calls the rank growth of wickedness. The other day I opened up the refrigerator and smelled something bad. Some of you have done that before. So I rooted around in the fridge until I found a plastic container that had contents that I couldn't recognize anymore. Opened the lid and nearly choked. Okay, that is rank. <laughs> that is rank. That's the word that James uses here. He says, get rid of it. Get rid of the rank wickedness, which is anger. And do what? He says, welcome the word which has been planted in your hearts by God and has the power to save. So hear that, my friends. God's word has already been planted in your hearts. God has spoken your soul into being. Welcome that with meekness and humility, James says, because it has the power to transform you. God within you has the power to transform. So James reminds us who God is, all power and all light and never changing. 
And then he says, we need to change our behaviors to better reflect the power of the divine which is in us. And finally, he says, but don't just believe in the power of God. Don't just hear the word within you. Don't just sit here and listen to the word proclaimed. Don't just read silently the word to yourselves. He says, be the word. Act on the word. Be doers of the word. James is adamant here that actions matter. Put your money where your mouth is. This is actually what caused a lot of friction in the Christian church over the years. In fact, it's exactly what Martin Luther got a little rankled over. Because James seems to contradict what we hear Paul saying over and over again. He wrote so prolifically about salvation is by faith alone, not works. But I believe that James and Paul are not in conflict. They complement each other. Both teach us something vital about our faith. Paul looks at what goes on internally. James talks about the external result. Paul says we're saved by faith. And James says this is what saving faith looks like in action. But if we really want to get to the bottom of the debate, I say let's go to the expert. What did Jesus teach? Well, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, here's just one example. We hear that some Jewish Pharisees and scribes, those are the leaders, the, the religious leaders of the day, were horrified to see that some of Jesus' disciples were not properly washing themselves. They were eating with what they called defiled hands. There was a very thorough and rigorous religious washing that had to take place. It was a protocol that everyone underwent before they ate. In fact, they had the same protocol. Myriad of laws uh, existed on how to wash your pots and pans, how to wash your plates and your kettles. And so the Pharisees were horrified to see that the disciples were not following this long-held protocol. And they said to Jesus, why do your disciples not wash in the tradition of our elders? And Jesus answered, as he often did to religious people like me, with a biting retort. He looked right at them and he said, Isaiah was right about you hypocrites. He said, you are all so good at setting aside the commands of God, but holding on to your own human traditions. Sound familiar? Then he calls the entire crowd now gathered around him, and he says, listen to me, all of you. And any time in scripture that Jesus says, listen to me, I think we're supposed to pay close attention. It's kind of like when your mom points her finger at you and says, now listen to me. You better have your eyes on her paying attention, right? So Jesus says, listen to me, all of you. It is not what goes into a person that defiles them, but what comes out. And then, in case you ever had any doubt that Jesus is 100% human, he gets a little gross. He says to the people that gathered there, it is not what goes into you. Whatever food you put into your body doesn't go to your hearts. Jesus said, it goes into your stomach and out into the sewer. Jesus actually said that. In other words, stop worrying about the food and the rituals and what keeps you clean. He says, worry about the meditations of your heart. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verse 20, it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. 
And then he lists them. He says theft, murder, adultery, extreme greed, sexual immorality that leads to idolatry, wickedness, deceit, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus names them all in no uncertain terms. And then he says all of these evil things come from within. And that is what defiles a person. See, Jesus was very much concerned with our hearts, not with the law. We are saved by our faith in Christ, not by our works. You are loved and beloved, and there is nothing you can do to change that. The healing, the transformation of the heart comes when we simply accept that free gift of grace. But then our grateful response as one of my favorite authors, Adam Hamilton, writes, our grateful response is not that we seek to live in obedience with a law that was written in another time and another place, but it is our grateful response to allow ourselves to be led and shaped and formed by the Holy Spirit. It is a daily process. Every time we screw up, we come back to God and say, let's try this again. Every time we see ourselves acting upon immoral or evil intentions of the heart, we come back to God who hears our every petition and knows the good that is within us. And we, are, we ask to be made new again. And the benefit of that forming and that shaping is that the evil intentions, the corruption, the tarnished parts of us give way to the fruits of the Spirit. Joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what God desires of us. It's what he desires for us. Because a heart transformed can transform the world, can build the kingdom Hanging on the wall in my in-law's home is a small little plaque that over the course of the last 29 years I've had an opportunity to memorize. Maybe some of you know this little saying. Beliefs become thoughts. Thoughts become words. Words become actions. Actions become habits. Habits become values. Values become your destiny. Now, on their little plaque, it says that this is a Chinese proverb, but I've also heard it attributed to everybody from Gandhi to Margaret Thatcher, which I think simply means that people put some weight behind this pithy little saying and that they want to attribute it to somebody who's worthy of having coined it. But I actually don't even think that this saying needs any different attribution. It stands on its own. Beliefs become thoughts. Thoughts become words. Words become actions, actions become habits, habits become values, values become your destiny. And my friends, our destiny hangs on both sides of the coin. Faith that God is and was and ever shall be world without end. Faith that God loves us no matter what. Faith that we will be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And on the other side of the coin is putting that faith into action, demonstrating to a hurting world what a transformed heart can do, demonstrating to a hurting family 
what a transformed heart can do. Demonstrating to a, uh, to a community, demonstrating to a hurting nation what a transformed heart can do. Being doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. James, as I mentioned earlier, composed this letter as a practical guide for Christians who were wrestling with how to integrate the ancient laws of their faith with Jesus' command to love God, love people. And James wraps up this particular passage this way. He said, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this. Care for the orphans and the widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained from the world. Wow. I think I want to add that to our banner out front that says, love God, love people. Religion that is pure and undefiled is to care for people in need and keep yourself unstained from the evils of the world. How in the world has religion strayed so far? I'm not knocking the beauty of religious practices or ceremony or sacred rites. I love them. But at its best, religious practice is designed to assist us in our efforts to worship and to commune with God so that we can be a loving presence in a hurting world and transform the corrupt nature of the world through loving acts of kindness. At its worst, religion is fear and oppression and power and misogyny and its abuse and its discriminatory and it's overly strict. And I could go on and on and on, but that just saddens me too much. So instead, I will wrap up with this, another example of what religion should be. I had the opportunity to watch the documentary film, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Won't You Be My Neighbor? What a class act Mr. Rogers was. He was an icon of kindness. Mr. Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian minister, which very few people probably knew, and his primary aim in developing his show was to make people feel loved. And didn't he have such a way of doing that? For 35 years, what you saw on television was his ability to just connect with people. He told people he loved them. He got down on kids' level and looked them in the eye. And he made them feel like they were somebody. When given the chance to speak before Congress, or given the chance to speak at universities, or uh, any of the public places where he spoke about causes that were dear to him, he did so with respect and with a gentle understanding of both sides of an issue. Mr. Rogers was a doer, plain and simple. He was the embodiment of the fruits of the Spirit. And he didn't pastor a church per se, but his religion was as pure as they come. We see examples of that every day. We see examples of people living out their faith without words, without preaching, only in deeds, only in their works. Small acts of kindness, small little self-corrections in behavior, being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, people going out of their way to help somebody in a significant way. And we all struggle with that daily, 
but we're all capable of it daily. When the language of faith is translated into concrete acts of love, it takes on a whole new power and meaning. Translated into concrete acts of love, the words of the gospel can touch people's hearts beyond our churches, beyond our religions, and they can change lives. So I invite you to just pray with me now about that.